Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. I hope you're all doing well today. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, well, I couldn't be more excited about this one. It's one that I've been trying to make happen for quite a long time. And in a bizarre uh, twist of events, which I think I touched on at the beginning of the episode, I was talking to somebody how I desperately wanted to get Martin on the podcast uh, and I, I couldn't seem to make it happen and then I walked out of the venue and walked straight into Martin Rossiter. Um, Gene was such an important band for me growing up and I honestly believe that Speak To Me Someone is one of the most beautiful records ever made uh, and so I tried to keep a lid on being a, a fanboy uh, on this episode and, and, and I hope hope I managed to do it. Um, they say don't meet your heroes and, um, well, sometimes it works out all right because Martin is, is a delight. He's kind and charming and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation um, because it felt like we had a smashing time. Um, before I get on with the episode, uh, I should say thanks to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, also, thank you to 76 for producing this. Um, a quick shout out to uh, podbiblemag.com. Podbible is a, a new magazine that Scroobius Pip and I and Adam Richardson have put together. And it also has a podcast as well, uh, bizarrely titled uh, Podbible Podcast. So give that a listen as well. Um, but let's get back to uh, to what's important and it's getting this episode started please enjoy off the beaten track podcast with the wonderful martin rossier i've got an announcement save our souls clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk why am i telling you this because they're our official sponsor yeah that's right Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. 
And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out, because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast, and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done, is they've given you 15% off. So, if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code, Beat 15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk, official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we're recording. We are at BIM, I believe it's called, yes, uh, in in Brighton, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be sitting opposite Martin Rossiter. Hello, you right? Um, yeah, I'm very happy. This is um, I've got level with you, Martin. This is the most nervous I've ever been for a podcast. I know, I am very, very frightening. <laughs> You're very charming, Martin. <laughs> um, I, I should give a little bit of backstory, which we've just spoken about before we press record. And uh, you were someone that, as 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 a musician, was very important in, in my, my formative years as a, a, as a music fan. And you were someone, when I first started doing this podcast, I was very keen to talk to. And, uh, and you seemed to be quite elusive, and uh, <laughs> well, I'm not oh, really you're just avoiding me. No, I'm not. I'm not elusive. <laughs> I'm just not very good at answering messages. As, as you said, because we had a very weird um, meeting. I, I, we'd just done the the Hardcore Listing Life podcast and uh, at the uh, at King's Place for the podcast festival, and and I was chatting to some of the people that come to the show, and uh, and I was chatting to this young lady that um, listens to uh, Off the Beaten Track, and she was saying, "Who is it? Like you know, you'd love to get on." I said, "Oh." I'll I've sent a few messages to Martin Rossiter. So I'd, I'd love to get him on. And she was saying that she bought tickets to your show, which we'll, we'll talk about as this this unfolds. And uh, I said, yeah, I just can't seem to sort of, you know, get through to him at the moment. And and I literally said, look, I've got to go. I'm busting for a wee. And as I walked out of the bar into the centre, Martin Rossiter was standing there. It's true. And, <laughs> and I must have freaked you out because I was like, Oh my god, this is very bizarre. And uh Yeah, your fa- your face was was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> literally literally like you've seen a you know, a family of, of, of dead relatives. I'm I'm no crazy hippie, Martin, but sometimes the universe works in weird ways and, and that was definitely one of those moments. I was like, Well, this is very strange and uh and you was gracious and kind and and said, Yes, I'll come and do the podcast. So fast forward two weeks we're we're sitting in um, what is your place of work, which we'll talk about as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and you're my guest today. And I'm delighted to be there. Thank you very much, Martin. As ever, we start this podcast with track one, which is the song with the greatest ever intro. It, this was a really, really easy one to to um, 
to, to choose. There really? is no choice because this is the song with the greatest intro, which is Many Rivers to Cross by Jimmy Cliff. Now, I... I've been teaching music for 17, 18 years, and I know lots of people have a more sort of encyclopedic knowledge of music than I do. You probably are, are one of the many. And so I wanted to get into reggae. And uh, one of the first things I bought was the Harder They Come soundtrack. And I played that song. And what I what I loved about it was you have this very hymnal church organ uh, intro, which has been copied a million times since by George Michael or Prince or whoever it is. But when the vocal comes in, it's it's so unexpected. It's so... This wonderful mixture of self-assured and tender and loving. And, uh, you know, from a technical point of view, of course, it's brilliant. But emotionally, it it literally sear, it seared itself into my heart within two seconds. So there is, there is no other. I, I can't believe that any of, you, any of your guests ever choose anything other than this song. It's a beautiful record, isn't it? It's an astonishing record. And, you know, I grew, we'll, we'll talk about hymns probably quite a lot in this because when I was a kid, I grew up in a little village um, about six miles west of Cardiff. And like uh, most people in the in the seventies, um, we used to go to Methodist Chapel every Sunday. Um, my parents weren't into pop music at all. I think probably the most modern record they had was uh, Sinatra's "Songs for Swinging Lovers," and so I didn't really hear pop music until my sisters reached an age where they started playing it. They're a little bit older than I am, um, and so all I knew was hymns. Which is is fantastic because they're, they're obviously musically, they've gone through a two hundred year f- filtration system. If you think about it, you know the stuff that Charles Wesley wrote or, or whomever. There, there are thousands of those hymns, but the ones we hear now have gone through generations saying, "Yes, this is good enough to play," and you know there are many that are long forgotten. And there's been a, a, a sense of quality control with with hymns, and and that. The organ opening on Many Rivers to Cross really, um, it always sends me back to being seven years old, sitting next to big mustachioed Welshmen. Which sounds like... (laughs) 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 Or not! Um, I mean, to be honest, if you dress them in leather, they'd, they'd look uh, they'd look like they could uh, be in man to man parish, well, or, or, or be in a club called Fist. <laughs> That's a wonderful night out there. Um, Martin, I'm interested as as somebody that teaches about songwriting mm-hmm. um, whilst we're talking intros. Um, I'm curious as to how you discuss intros and 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 teach uh, aspiring songwriters about intros and how you approached it. Um, if we go back to the years of Gene in the in the in the mid '90s, um, was obviously intros are very important in music. It appears in a world we live in now that we're overexposed to so much music and whatever format you listen to, if it's on Spotify, if it's on YouTube, there's a a myriad of of options down the side of the screen saying you may like this. There's distractions and and in a world of Shazam where, you know, it, it feels everything so instant. Has that impacted how you... What I'm trying to say is the way that you teach people about intro now, is it different to how you would have approached it in Gene 
Well, it's changed somewhat. I mean, it, intros have halved in length over the last 10 years. Because okay. Because of streaming. Um, because of this world you allude to, this sort of, you know, records are, are fighting to for the attention of the listener. And because of the accessibility of music... Um, Intros are now short. We uh, the, the the mantra is get to the vocal as soon as possible, and and so the idea of um, having having something that's that's a little bit more scene setting, which is what a great intro should do. It should it should set you up, and it may surprise you, or it, it may um, sort of reaffirm what you're expecting, and both both um, approaches work. Um, but yes, the intro the intro is a is a dying art, mm. which which. I think is a shame, but then you've got to realise that pop music, uh, you know, popular music had, has always been um, a commercial pursuit, and I think it's often worked best where there is um, a tension between commerce and art. Motown is a classic example of that, where these records were made to to be to to sell and also made to be great songs, and so that 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 push and pull of um, commerce and creativity I think is in a way what makes pop music so vital so yes at the moment they're shorter um, but I refuse to be one of the I mean, I'm 50 next year and I refuse to be one of those sort of 50 years old 50 year olds misty eyed looking back saying oh everything was better in my day because I'm not sure it actually was sure sure um so I didn't really answer your question there but as long as it's interesting I'm sure you don't <laughs> not at all not at all um so in regards to looking back, um, you've recently announced that you're going to be playing um, what what I believe is going to be your last live it is, show. It is going to be my last show. Um, everybody's telling me that uh, I'm lying about it, but it is going to be my last show. Um, it's partly to shut people up, to be honest. I have so uh, years and years of people telling me, get the band back together or, you know, come and play in my town. Why can't you just come to my town and do it? Uh, you know, which I understand, but I, I don't think people quite understand quite how much money it costs to put a gig on. Sure. Um, I mean, with this, I've got to get a band together. I've got to um, rehearse them up. That's going to cost me about five or six thousand um, pounds. It, it, it's it's an expensive game. So um, yeah, it's going to be my last show. I was offered a second date, which I turned down, be basically because. It was sold as a one-off, and a one-off, it must, must, must remain. Why finish? I don't want to do it anymore. Why? Um, I, I, being a musician, and especially being a songwriter and a front person, that, that requires, um, it's a slightly ego-driven pursuit. Um, and I don't. I don't really, I don't get my self-worth, without sounding too much like a hippie, but I don't get my self-worth from being, you know, the the guy who was in a band. Sure. I have other things I want to do. I have three children. Um, I have a wife. I want to uh, do other creative things. I've been doing some music for TV. Uh, I enjoy the craft of music. I genuinely enjoy working with lots of young people. Um and I don't, I don't, I think I've, my story, certainly through song, my story's been told uh, and I'm not going. Do you feel like that? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the last album. The, I felt like I became a good songwriter in my 40s. 
partly through teaching because it makes you it forces you to disseminate what you know and um i mean i i listen back to the gene pack back catalog very fondly there are of course some songs i cringe a little bit but i'm not going to say what they are because i don't want to ruin anybody else's memory mm -hmm. um but i feel like i i, I come as close as I think I'm going to come to mastering my art in, in my early 40s. And I think my solo album, I, I said all I wanted to say in that form. So I'm not going to do it anymore. I think more people should stop. How would you feel about that if that was a band that you really liked? And, and well, I, I hope, you know, I'd hope I'd respect their decision. Sure. You know, I, it's... it's Music is hugely important to me. It, it, it does something that that um, no other art form can do. It, there's, there's something magical about it. Um, but that doesn't mean I have to make it for the rest of my life. And I certainly don't want to feel that I'm trying to squeeze out songs like Difficult Turds uh, just to, because some people think I should carry on making music. Mm. So I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah. I, I, you know, if the urge isn't there, the urge isn't there, I'll do something else. I, and I, you know... <laughs> Again, without sounding like you know, virtuous, oh, look, here comes Mr. Liberal, the teacher. Mm -hmm. I, the, I, I get so much pleasure from working with, you know, some of the young people who, who I teach and helping them. That's, that's wonderfully satisfying. So, yeah, I just don't, I, I haven't got, I've got now else to say. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just write songs for the sake of it. No one needs to force a difficult term, Martin. No. <laughs> I was particularly proud of that analogy. That's quite good. I normally nick a little line for this for the sound bite, so I think that's definitely going to be it. Um, so there was no honourable mentions for intros. That one was just undeniable, straight in. Yeah, straight, it, 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 it literally is the only one that come, comes into my head um, because I just think it's, it's that moment where everything is right. I mean, that voice. I mean, if that voice doesn't move you, you're, you're dead. It's heaven sent. It, it really, really is. is, yeah. Track two, Martin. Mm -hmm. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Well, it's inevitable it's going to be a hymn or mm -hmm. a Christmas carol. So I think, what did I choose? It Hark was, the Herald. Oh, it was Hark the Herald, yeah. I mean, there it could have been Jerusalem. It could have been uh, in the bleak midwinter. It could have been a, a myriad of hymns or Christmas carols. Um, My last guest chose Jerusalem. <laughs> well, I don't blame them because yeah. it's, it's one of the greatest melodies ever written. You know, maybe Danny Boy. But I have very, very... Um, strong memories of going to, you know, carol services as a child, um, feeling, you know, the, the, the sort of cold, frosty Cardiff days. Um, Conway Road Church, where, where I used to go in Cardiff, had... Um, well, at the time, I went back there recently, and it's still quite an impressive building, not as impressive as it was to, uh, uh, you know, to a four-foot-six um, Welsh boy, but it has, uh, has quite... Uh, Quite an imposing facade. Lots of steps up to the to these big wooden doors at the top of the steps, and um, uh, walking in there. And you know, the Welsh can sing. Uh, it's it's part of the tradition, and and especially men singing is, is something that's seen as a. It's seen as a, in a way a butch thing to do, and so uh, you'd walk in. You'd walk in, and the the service would start, and. Um, they're probably, I don't know if I'm guessing, four or 500 people 
in the room and it felt like every single person in that room had an amazing voice people would break out into harmony um and there i think growing up with 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 hymns has really informed how i view music it's for me it's always been about melody harmony and words i've been less concerned by uh, production values and, and rhythm, although of course those things matter. But for me, the thing that really moves me is a room of people singing. And, and when you have, and that's all you have, you have somebody playing the organ and you have 500 people singing a tune. Um, and Heart the Herald Angels sing uh, the Mendelssohn arrangement there. It's it's perfect, it's, it's faultless. There's something, I mean, I, I'm not gonna, you know, I teach songwriting, I'm not gonna, bore you with a, a harmonic analysis, but there's some, there's some very clever things going on in there which are made to sound very easy. What would have been the emotion that would have caused? Uh, it was a something ever so slightly otherworldly. I, um, the condition has a name which I've, I've forgotten and I'm not going to Google it with a microphone in my hand, but there's a condition where people respond very physically to music and it's about two or three percent of the population um i uh, are you talking goosebumps here Mike? yeah i am talking goosebumps um but i i have a, a thing where with a piece of music i know the exact moment i'm going to get goosebumps i can listen to it a hundred times i can say at one minute 20 seconds i can i've done it with students i hold my arm out and go look at my arm five four three two one boom um and I, I, I respond more than most people f physically to music. And I... Um, is that called change or is that what... what? Well, it's... Okay. <laughs> it's a lot of things. It's not simply a chord change. It's a chord change in, in uh, relation to melody. It's quite often it's, it's things like use of secondary dominant chords, musical, technical stuff. But um, there are certain moments which are... I can only sum up as a. I'm not religious, but that's slightly spiritual. There's something bigger than you feeling, and it's a very, and I think it's one that everybody knows. And it's an incredibly powerful emotion, especially when you're six or seven and you don't have the the lingua franca, the lexicon to uh, somehow make sense of that feeling. Sure. Um, I just remember being um, deeply, deeply moved often, almost every Sunday, by music, uh, you know, in a very, very profound way. I think you've uh, explained that pretty well now. Oh, tell very much. <laughs> Track three. Yes, what did I put for this? Uh, it's the song that reminds you of your time at oh, school. Oh, yeah, now, right, okay, so I went to uh, Peterston Super Ely uh, Primary School, which was a very small village school. And then when I was nine, my dad changed jobs and we moved from Wales uh, to near Watford. And I went to a school called Stag Lane. And it was there that I realised uh, there was a schism, uh, a, a Grand Canyon divide between, worse than Brexit. And the divide was Shaken Stevens or Adam and the Ants. <laughs> <laughs> and right. you you had to take sides. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact that Shaky is a... a he's a Welshman, he's isn't a, he? Oh, he's, he's Cardiff boy, and he's beautiful, he's, <laughs> uh, Despite the fact that Shaky was a Welsh boy, 
Adam and the Ants were cool. It's funny, I play, sometimes I'll play um, to students nowadays, I'll play Kings of the Wild Frontier, um, which is, I know I picked out music, it could have been any of them, to be honest, but I'll play Kings of the Wild Frontier to students, and they think it's some strange left-field, um, you know, alternative experimental act. It's a very, very odd record. Chanting, um, uh, loads of sort of feedback guitars, uh, uh, 30 seconds where there's just two drummers playing mm -hmm. at the same time. And this was pop music at the time. Adam and the Ants, for about a year, were probably the biggest band in the country. At music at number one, I believe it was. At music was number two. Right. Um, I know what, their first number one was Prince Charming. First record to go straight at number one since 1974 in 1981. Stayed there for five weeks. You've out-nerded me there, mate. Oh, yeah. I don't, <laughs> don't start me. And then Prince Charming, the follow-up single, went straight at number two, and everybody was very disappointed, but then went to number one the following week and stayed for four weeks. Um, Adam Ant used to fund his own videos because the record company didn't believe that video was... a. a sufficiently effective promotional tool. So, so he paid for those videos himself. He hired Diana Dawes. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Who hasn't? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, this, this schism, you know, leave or remain, shaky or Adam, I went for Adam. Um, of, of course, there are childhood photos of me with the white stripe across my Obviously. face. Obviously. There have to be 11th birthday party. Um, what a beautiful I, man he was. Oh, wasn't, I've, I met him. I, I got to know him a little bit um, in the 90s. Select Magazine did a... Uh, a series of features where you know current artists interview their heroes, and they asked me if I'd like to do um, Adamant, and we got on really, really well. Um, lost touch with them subsequently, but we were we were at sort of exchanging Christmas card wonderful card level. Um, and he was he was a, he was a, well, it was, was he's still with us? God, um, uh, sort of tender, a very tender man actually. You know, um, I imagine he he. He, would he feels incredibly loyal and loving. I got on w with him really, really, really well. Um, so, yeah, but at school, I, I would um, always be the first down uh, on a Monday morning. Well, if I, whenever I could get to the record shop to buy the singles the day they came out. To the point when um, Goody Two Shoes came out which was Adam Ant's first mm -hmm. solo single. It wasn't, because the first issue of um, records still had Adam and the Ants written on the Really? Single, which I have a copy, of course. Wonderful. Like an idiot, though, I was also wrote my name on every record I... Um, we all done it, mine. In. We all done it. So I've got lots of Adam and the Ant records with Martin Rossiter written across <laughs> them. <laughs> like a fucking idiot. Um, so yeah, I, w I was definitely on... I was, I, was, I was an Ant person. I used to draw pictures of him. I... Um, would defend his honour, uh, happily fight on his behalf. And and Ant music, um, again, it seemed... Rather, in, in a way, I imagine people slightly older than me, that, that experience they had watching Starman on top of the pots with Bowie, me watching Adam and the Ants on top of the... That was my Bowie moment. It, he was otherworldly. It was... It was this weird mixture of highwaymen and pirate and vagabond, ragamuffin, um, rebel rebellious yet sort of sexy and cool, um, effortless. Um, it seemed essential though and energetic and 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 from a different place and completely unreachable. 
Um, what more does a young man want? Nothing. I didn't want anything more than that. And so, yeah, I've got, I fell in love with them. They, they, were, they were my band. How was school? Uh, primary, up until secondary school, it was fine. Um, I mean, I did get, because I, I, I had a sort of, I think a sort of soft, half Welsh, half Cardiff accent as a kid, um, which I think had gone by the time I was 11, because to the last two years in primary school, going from, from a, a village school um, in Glamorgan to... Um Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To a... a, a and make it sound like I moved to the Bronx. It wasn't that bad, don't get me wrong. But, uh, I, yeah, I got the accent beaten out of me quite quickly. Right. Um, you know, at that age, you want to belong. Nobody wants to... No no, no one wants to stand out when they're 11. I, I loathe school. The, the secondary school I went to at 11 was... It was a weird school because it was a single-sex comprehensive. Uh, it had been a grammar school but was no longer a grammar school. So it was a, you know, it was a state school, um, but it retained a lot of the sort of atmosphere and feeling of something more austere than that. Um, it, they, they called everybody by their surname. It had that, you know, that sort of rather pompous school uniform of wearing a blazer, which I've never understood why they want... Um, you know, 11-year-old boys looking like sort of ill-fitted businessmen walking around. Um, I probably wouldn't scratch the surface too much on that. Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> Read into that what you will, dear <laughs> listener. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, was, it was a school I, I discovered later that actually got... It was, um, it was sort of pulled, hauled over the coals for racism because... The area in Watford, uh, where it is, is there's a large um, Asian community there, and I re- and it was a state school, so there wasn't meant to be any, there weren't meant to be any entry requirements, and they were doing it via the back door. What really, to re- reflect the area it was in, it should have been about uh, probably one third Asian kids, 
and in my year there was one. And by the time I was in fifth form, that's year 11 for the youngsters, um, it was about one third. I, I, apparently it was discovered that they were sort of, you know, trying to keep non-white people out of the school, which is a fucking disgrace. Charming. Yeah. Um, so yeah it was a yeah, horrendous place. I, I, I loathed every minute of it. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Music-wise, what was what was you listening to in secondary school? Um, uh, the pop of the day. Um, I also was starting, starting to look back because I can remember hearing... You had to search mu- for music. The, the value of finding things out and people making uh, constantly making cassettes for each other. So it varied from anything from, um, you know, the, the pop of the early 80s, so whatever was a hit, so Madness, the specials, but also things that are far less cool than that. Um, the Smiths, the Redskins I was massively into. And then I started to explore music. My uh, A guy I was in a very embryonic band with a, a man called James Elkington, who's now a musician based in the States, quite successful. Um, we were in a band together and he played me, I remember him playing me Public Enemy for the first time and that literally um, rewired my synapses. Um, going back and hearing the Velvet Underground for the first time, you know, going around to people's houses and, and nicking, you know, nicking their dad's, whiskey or whatever it was um and and listening to records and that and and you know people making me tapes where i heard the birds for the first time uh, and and hearing house music for the first time later on late 80s um so i I, lots of things really and because it, it goes back to being in church because it wasn't it was for me it was always about words and melody and so Genre and how how um, how songs are dressed, you know what clothes people put on those songs was far less important to me. So, I I I wasn't tribal in the sense of I like this type of music. Was you obsessive? Oh yeah, to a degree. I mean, I remember when uh, I think it was Keep on Keeping on, uh, the Redskins came out. I bought ten copies of it. <laughs> I, um, Why? No, well actually, I bought I like I bought eleven copies of it. Um, one for myself, and I gave them out because I think people needed to hear it. That's wonderful. I was walking around school going, "You, you must, you must own this record." And people, fuck off, Ross. Do you freak? <laughs> You've always been weird, and now it's confirmed. Um, but yeah, I used to used to do things like that and I'd make tapes. I nineteen. 85 I uh so in, at the beginning of January I recorded the whole um the whole top 40 rundown on I think it was on 
it might have still been on Tuesdays by then, or it might have moved to Sunday, can't remember. And then every subsequent week, I would record all the new entries. So f for that year, I had every song that entered the top 40 on tape. Was you, as, as, aside from just enjoying it, was you deconstructing it, like music? Yeah, I... Um, we had a piano at home. I had, you know, I was one of those kids who had piano lessons from quite an early age. Um, and probably from about the age of 12, 13, around then, I was obsessed with working out how to play songs on the piano. Now, that sort of slightly OCD um, approach mixed, a, a funny cocktail, the, the OCD approach mixed with um, laziness, Meant I say so what I wouldn't do. I I wouldn't play the record and try and play along. I'd try and work them out by ear. Now, for any piano players in in listening, um, playing in C major or A minor is a lot easier because you don't really have to use the black notes very often. Um, and so I would work out all these songs by ear, and it could be the Beatles, it could be songs from musicals. It, it was sometimes saying, where there's a place for us, songs like that. It's just songs with great melodies. Um, and I would sit and work them out. And because I was working them out in, in the same key each time, you start to see patterns in songs. So you, I'd be like, oh, okay, that song goes from, from there to there. Oh, and so does that one, and so does that one, so does that one. And that really helped. And the internet, I've noticed with students I teach, is, is killing that skill. Because nowadays, if you want to learn a player's to play a song, you Google, what are the chords for? Sure. And so the, the, I didn't realize at the time that I was training my ear and, and training this sort of understanding of, um, of, of songs. But I, you know, I'm now one of those people, you, you name a song, I can sit at the piano and just play it. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's all, all it is, it's a bit like playing a video game. After a while, uh, you know, if you're playing FIFA, you, you're not, you're not, when you first start playing it, going, okay, which button is jump? which button is slide tackle. And after a while, it becomes innate. And it's the same thing with this. I just, I, for about two or three years, I did that probably for an hour or two every day. Okay. For the next track, Martin, what was the first record you bought? First record I bought. Now, I was, it's funny because I didn't, the first record I bought was very cool, right? And it wasn't I, 11 copies of the Redskins. No, no, that was later. <laughs> but, and the thing is, I'm really conscious that I'm sure people, you know, you've had many guests on, on this podcast, and I'm sure people sometimes lie about the first record that they bought. You're wrong, Martin. Do they not? No. How do you know? Um, because no one's really said anything particularly cool. Oh, have they not? Um, okay. Maybe, no. maybe, maybe I'm being far too cynical about people. <laughs> um, but genuinely, this is not a lie. I, the first record I bought, and I was delighted to discover it. Now, I can never remember whether it was green or purple vinyl, but I went to HMV in Cardiff and bought Up the Junction by Squeeze. It's purple. Thank you. Um, yeah, purple vinyl. Wrote my name on the front. Um, and I, I, I think I just heard it on the radio, and it was... At the time, it was it was a brilliant tune. I mean, subsequent, I still love it to this day. It's one of the greatest uh, piece of pieces of narrative songwriting. Without a chorus. Without a chorus. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's but that's a classic folk tradition. The you know an A A A A A A song form or A A B A A A B or whatever it might be. But that storytelling um, uh, song structure. Um, I didn't know what all the words meant at the time. Um, you know, from a subject matter 
you know, the subject matter of this, the, 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 this sad story of this guy's failed relationship and a child and all, all that sort of stuff. And I didn't really understand that. I, I've, it felt like it meant something. I, I, you know, I didn't really know what an incubator was when I was 11. Um, you know, and I thought the line, little kicks... Uh, inside her was little cakes inside her, which I thought was rather nice. Um, I thought, oh, well, that's nice. I could, oh, all right, fancy a cake. Um, <laughs> you know, because I, I guess that, that that was my brain making making yeah. sense of it. But it just melodically, it's it's brilliant. You know, I never thought it would happen with me and the girl from Clapham. What, what a great opening line. Yeah. It's quite well sung then, I thought. Martin, it's one of my favourite ever records. Is it? Oh, I'm glad. And I, I just that. had Martin Ross here sing it to me, so it's a good day, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful record. It really it? is. It's it's you know it's it's weirdly hopeful melodically. Actually, um, it it I mean, what's you know, Squeeze were very good at. Um, Writing songs, I mean, they rarely use the four-chord turnaround trick. They, they, their songs were, it felt like it came from a more sort of almost 19th century European tradition of the songs as a whole having an arc and each section having an arc and a sort of chordal journey. And I, 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 it, it, again, I th I th everything goes back to hymns. They, there's something a slightly hymnal harmonically about it. And it's, it's just fucking lovely, isn't it? I mean, it's what a, what a great song. Can you remember where you bought it? HMV, Cardiff. Okay. Yeah. As you got older... I did buy another record at the same time. What was it? Uh, it was it was something else by the Sex Pistols because it had Friggin', friggin in the Riggin' on the B-side. Right. Because at the time, it was like everybody was like, oh, have you heard this song? Have you heard this song? Have you yeah. heard this song? I didn't know what any of that meant. But what was, it was, what was that? It was a double A-side, wasn't it? Was it was something else. Was it Who Killed Bambi on the other side? No, it was something else from Friggin' in the Riggin'. Yeah. Uh, unless I'm... My memory is terrible. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Yeah. Um, but I know I bought it because it was naughty. Yeah. I didn't know what it meant. I had swear words in it. It's like, so as you got older, um, and 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 you know, we, we, I guess we're talking the sort of era of of, of your uh, obsession over the Redskins and the like. How important were record shops to you? Oh, hugely important. Um, in. Uh, I lived in a place called Chorleywood for a while, and there was a tiny little record shop called Strawberry Fields, uh, which I used to go... I just used to go and hang out in. I worked in our price when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, around that age, our price in Watford. I mean, Watford High Street had two R prices on it. And they were places that sometimes you would go to... I remember being 15 or 16, and there was a guy, this was before I worked there, there was a guy called Ian who worked in R. Price in Watford. And he was he was probably 20 at the time, and I looked at him, as, he, it was something to aspire to. He knew everything. Um, and had, you know, had great hair and adventurous shoes. Um, and I... I um, <laughs> I, That's I, a good name for a band. Yes, it's, it's, it's really not. Uh, and I really looked up to, to Ian and would go and talk to him about music. And I think he quite liked me. And we would, he, you know, we would talk talk just about being in, wanting to be in bands and what records we liked and you know what was going to happen next. Ian, uh, a few years later, was having a number one single in the United States with Jesus Jones. 
He was the keyboard player in Jesus Jones. Keyboard breaker Ian Baker, keyboard. former guest on this podcast. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I used to go and hang out with Ian. Right. Uh, when I was fifteen, um, and then I, I, I guess I took on that mantle of I, w- I was five years later was working there, and people would come and talk to me, and go, oh, what's what's the new, you know, what should I listen to? And but you know, we, it was a small shop with four or five staff, and you'd just go and get a record and put it on the turntable and go, what do you think of this? Hugely important places. And even those sort of quite corporate shops, like R Price, which I think was bought out by WH Smith. It was. Um, those, those places, still, there was still that personal relationship you'd develop with, with customers. Whether it was, we, oh, we had, a, lo- had a, <laughs> a guy called Dave um, who would come in every day. He was blind and he had uh, this massive uh, Alsatian guide dog called Elton, named after Elton John. And it was always a delight to have him in the shop. And we'd, I think he was just lonely and he'd, he'd come in and chat to us. And every day he'd ask for whether Patsy Cline had made any new records. And it would, you know, it would literally bring a tear to the eye. But it was also a wonderful opportunity to just, you know, our evil manager couldn't really tell us off for being nice to the blind guy who's yeah. just come in the shop and sort of, you know, playing with the dog and, and just having chat and making sure he was all right, really. So there, it, it, there was a real, sen- a real sense of community in those shops. Uh, which is long gone, and and I mean I can remember, I can rem- I bought the Redskins album, neither Washington nor Moscow, because it came in. I didn't know who they were, and I just thought that's a fucking great title. I wonder what that. Is. So I just bought it, went home and played it. It was like, whoa, this is amazing. You know, they sound like they they they, they sound like gospel songs sung by punks, and I, that was always. You know, that was quite exciting to me. Um, and I can remember when the Manic Street, Street Preachers um, first single um, came in the shop. I, I assumed, I thought that's the greatest ever name for a rapper. If you think, I mean, the, you know, they met the, the, the hip hop community missed the trick because that would be the greatest name for a for sort of a, a, a rap group. Whenever I've spoke about band names, I'm not the biggest fan of the band. I think they've got some great mm. records. But I think the Manic Street Preachers is one of the greatest band names ever. Oh, it is unquestionably. But they should have been rappers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were they were talking Public Enemy around that time, I believe. Yes, they probably were. But yeah, it's I, so so stuff like that and stuff you'll discover and you know stuff you'll take a punt on sometimes. Um, and also that you know that two three weeks waiting uh, waiting for a record to be released, being that the. F- you know, f- feeling like you ruled the world because you were the first person in line to get it pouring over the sleeves. All the thing that us old bastards talk it's, about. It was a beautiful Going journey, misty, though, wasn't it? Misty-eyed, aren't we? I, mean, I was talking... Um, my wife's American, and I was talking with her last night, and she was say, you know... She had pen pals all over the world, and then people would send each other fanzines or photos they'd taken at gigs. You know, oh, she'd be like, "Oh, I, I got to see so and so in in Atlanta," and she'd get the go go to the, the their equivalent of Boots and get the the film developed and make three copies so she could send photos off to to people. I loved all that. I loved being played, ta- tape swapping especially. I mean, that sort of piracy wasn't killing music; it was keeping the music industry alive because the quality was never good enough. You'd still go and buy it. Of course. Home taping is was was a, a wonderful thing. You make sleeves for people. What's your thoughts on nostalgia? I'm I'm not particularly nostalgic. I mean, 
<laughs> it's funny if this was a philosophy podcast, there'd mm-hmm. probably be a very different answer. I mean, I'm, I there are there are. I, I refuse to be Nigel, a sort of musical Nigel Farage. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, sort of longing for, you know, village cricket greens and cream teas and and less black people. I think there's a lot. I mean, I've I've been work. I've been teaching for seventeen years, and I've been working with young people, and and some of them are brilliant. Mm-hmm. I I love this generation. So I'm not particularly nostalgic about music, although inevitably this podcast, because of its format, is making me seem like I am, which I, which I'm I, I'm fine about. I don't frankly care what people think either way but um i i'm I'm certainly not one of those it was better in the old days people Mm. you know anybody listening feel free to shoot me in the temple if you ever hear me say that i just wonder because i've spoke to other guests that have have, have been more uncomfortable with nostalgia and and I'm, i'm just talking as a as a as someone in their mid 40s that when for instance i don't know i can go and watch the Lemonheads play Shame About Rain, its entirety. Mm-hmm. I really, as much as I, I'm still very excited by new music, I do still like their well, moments of yeah, nostalgia. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing. I mean, there's nothing, you know, nostalgia in itself is not harmful. Mm. Uh, I think when nostalgia um, gets stirred into a pot of nationalism is when you, I think you have to, you have to worry. I mean, I, I think people who say things like, well, music stopped in 19, you know, insert year are, are fools because the idea that people suddenly got worse at writing songs is, is ridiculous. There's some amazing, I've got, I've got students here. I'd buy their records any day. Yeah. And a lot of them, um, so yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't have a problem with p- people being nostalgic, mm. but if when you're being solely nostalgic, I, I think it's just a pity you're missing out. I lent the Lemonheads a guitar on their first ever gig in the UK. Really? Yes. Tell me the story, mine. They were playing at. Uh, I'd f- completely forgotten about this. They were doing an in-store rough trade shop, and basically, a, a mate of mine who was a couple of years older had said. Uh, the Lemonheads are playing, and, and I, to this day, I don't quite know how he knew this, but the Lemonheads are playing at the Rough Trade shop, and they've forgotten a guitar. And so I, I, I was sort of, I think I was in London at the time, and I had to go back, and I grabbed, I borrowed an acoustic guitar and brought it back and brought it to the Rough Trade shop, sort of, you know, like the worst action film ever. <laughs> Sort of sweaty boy running and going. There you go. There's the. There's your guitar. But yes, I lent them a guitar. Wonderful. Um, okay, so we're going to move it forward a little bit now. And and I've asked you um, the song that soundtracked your years in Clubland. Um, and when you messaged back, you explained um, you wasn't a fan of clubbing. Oh no, it wasn't that I wasn't a fan. I just felt like I. I, I I'm. I'm. Te- I'm a terrible dancer. Okay. Um, and so occasionally. Do you I ha- like to dance though? Not really. I think most people don't like to do things they're not very good at. Mm. Um, I think a lot of musicians aren't very good dancers, actually. I mean, part of the skill of playing an instrument is sometimes some of your movements are slightly out of time. So if you think when I'm playing the piano and I'm using my foot to to use the sustain pedal, I'm having to do that. If I do that on the beat, I'll miss it. I have to do that before the beat. Um, So there's... uh, 
maybe this is just my rationale for being, t- <laughs> you know, for having for having no left feet or right feet. Um, like a couple of, I feel like when I'm dancing, I, I, my my legs have deodorant rollers on the bottom. That's what it feels like uh, on an oily floor. Um, so I, I not very good. I see. I loved house music and the you know the first. What, what they were calling then the second summer of love, 89. Yeah. Um, and I was listening to a lot of those records, you know, things from more commercial stuff like, you know, all the remix of the sun rising by the beloved or weird German stuff like West Bam's alarm clock or mm-hmm. strange, strange records. And, um, you know, I'd make people tapes, uh, but the idea of, of actually going to a club, it, it frightened me. I didn't feel like I was cool enough. So I never went. I mean, it was the day, you know, I had, 1920 it was the days of you know people driving around the m25 meeting at a service station waiting for the next instruction to end up in a field in in kent at three in the morning um which i never did those i mean living on the m25 at that point i didn't either martin um but that point we're very similar in age and that that point, that late 80s... It's easy for you to say being younger than me, you bastard. <laughs> yeah, we're very similar in age, but I'm younger. <laughs> Let's just clear that up. <laughs> Fucker. Um, Honestly, next, my, my age is soon going to begin with a five. <laughs> um, that late you know, 80s... You know, I'm starting to loathe you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got more grey in my stubble than you, Martin. Yeah. Um, it was a... <laughs> Very exciting time for music, that that point in the late 80s, with house music, hip-hop, what was happening with, I guess, what what you call indie music at that point, crossing over with what was happening in dance music. It just felt like, I I know you mentioned the second summer love, but it did feel like so much stuff was happening, whether that be Soul to Soul, De La Soul, Happy Mondays, it just felt like... Music and, was, and it felt a lot less tribal. And it, from a political point of view, it felt um, it felt slightly less class based. It felt more democratic in the sense it it felt like you didn't need to to um, you know have a rich uncle to pay for you to go into the studio. If the the this was the beginning of the democratization of of the making process of music with you know, early samplers sure. and, and, and computing. Um, and, you know, we see the result of that now, which is you, if you can get a second-hand Mac and nick a crack copy of Logic Audio, you can make a record in your bedroom, which I think is wonderful. Unfortunately, the end result is loads of people think they can make records. Um, but on the flip side, loads of people do make wonderful records. So back then, 89, um, it felt like something very exciting was happening um although it, I, I i do feel it was very male it's a very good point i do th- think it was a very male scene i mean it was it was in a way it, it, it was men being sort of more uh physically and sort of sexually open the idea of men dancing um but if you think if you think back to that scene, all the sort of um, all the, the 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 main players are male, um, you know, and, and hip hop's guilty of that. The whole sort of um, 
house scene was guilty of that. The, I mean, mu- music as a whole is very guilty of being really yeah. misogynistic. Um, very much so. Then, yeah, there there aren't, you know, there it's seen as a um, a man's world. Unfortunately, you chose a record that you tell me you like to dance in your kitchen to. Yeah, "Sexy Motherfucker" by Prince, because it's the funkiest record I've made. Now, you you must have had those nights where you. You spit, it, spit, sound, sound like a 20 year old. You sit, and that, that was, that was, I'm, I'm waffling. I'm sorry, just edit this bit out. Just go, uh, I don't it, edit this, Martin. Uh, just, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. There's, uh, I've forgotten what words are. Um, uh, you, you sit drunkenly with, with friends, and uh, you take it in turns to put a record on, mm-hmm. or you play something off Spotify or whatever it is. And whenever, it gets to the what's the uh, literally the funkiest record ever made. People always think they've won when they put a James Brown track or uh, Cross the Tracks by Maceo and the Max or whatever it might be. But actually, when you A, B it, Sexy Motherfucker by Prince whoops them all. I'm unembarrassed to say that it's funkier than James Brown. And I fucking love James Brown. And But Sexy Motherfucker is just... And the... Uh, and the Hammond organ, uh, uh, we're sat with the Hammond organ over in, in the corner of the room here. The Hammond organ solo is the greatest Hammond organ, organ solo ever played. The followed by uh, the, the whole, th- there are very, uh, I'm, I pride myself on being quite erudite, but as you can hear, when, when I talk about Prince, I become this sort of mumbling fool <laughs> because he, he was the greatest man being. Whoever lived, and I love him, and I'd like to suck his legs. <laughs> he died on my birthday. That was one of the worst birthdays ever. I literally woke up and put the telly on, and uh, and and was and was met with that, and uh, that certainly took a massive shine off of uh, off of my day, as it well, did I'll, I'll, a million other people. Well, let, let's go to his grave, get him up, and make him die on a different day. Exactly. Let's do that. Um, yeah, but I just the uh, prince. Um, this is going to sound really cocky, but with a lot of records I hear, and I think, oh, I could have done that. And I, and I don't mean that arrogantly, but I, I do feel like, oh, I, I understand what, what's happened there. I might have thought of that. But the records I truly fall in love with are the ones where I'm like, fucker, why didn't I think of that? And yeah. Prince, Prince was constantly doing, why didn't I think of that records? Yeah. And um, yeah, if, if asked for a favorite artist, Always, Prince. Always. So, you say you didn't go clubbing. So, when uh, Gene... uh... Well, I lie a little bit. I did go clubbing briefly. I had a friend called Ed. Uh, I I, I can't drive and have never been able to drive. And he had a car and didn't really drink. And we briefly got into that whole talking loud Mm -hmm. scene. Um, Sort of, you know, Young Disciples, Galliano, all that sort of stuff. and you know, Giles, Giles Peterson was a, a you know, but still is popular DJ of the time. And well, that was his label, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Ed was really into this stuff, and I quite liked it. And so we would go to these clubs, but you know, we just would stand there. We'd try and do the "I know how to dance, but I'm not going to dance dance." <laughs> You know, where you've maybe got one move. It, it might just be a flick of a foot and you're, you know, you're sitting at the bar having a drink and then you just hear something, you just do a, a little sachet across, 
you know, two feet across the floor <laughs> and then stop. And it's just like, yeah, I, I, if, if I could, I'd be out there with all you wonderfully beautiful yeah. London people. I'm just going to do my quick James Brand slide, then yeah, get back I'm, to my pint. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's what we would do all evening, wondering why people didn't want to kiss us. <laughs> But I was going to say, when 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 Gene started having commercial success in in, in the mid nineties, yeah. like w- would there be parties and things like that? And would you would, would that? And 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 also uh, as a side note on that, like how did you deal with 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 fame and celebrity? Uh, <laughs> like most things in life, terribly. Um, I, I wasn't that famous. It's not you know I wasn't you know Dave Grohl or Elton John or um, Peter Beardsley. It, 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 or a newsreader, you know, Richard Baker or whoever. You know, I could walk down the street and go to my local shop. Gene fans loved you as, as fondly as Foo Fighters fans loved Dave Grohl. Well, that's the, that might that might be the that might be the case, but it, it, it which is very flattering. It's but there were fewer of them, of course. So yeah, and I, you know, people would occasionally, occasionally stop you in the street and and. 99% of the time be, you know, charming and lovely and you, you, you have a little chat or, or sometimes not be able to because, you, you you know, nobody ever knows that you need a shit and you're running for the lead, do they? <laughs> but you're 10 seconds away from staining your, um, your Marks and Sparks boxer shorts. And that, oh, that Martin Roster was terribly rude. Well, it would have been a lot worse if he'd stayed. I can guarantee that. <laughs> Oh, brilliant! Um, so, uh, but I, I, I mean, I, I did hold on um, and remain friends, and still am friends with the people I was friends before I was in a band with. And yes, I would. There were parties and things, and they got very boring very quickly. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm like everybody else. Sometimes you get a little. Bit, what people don't realise is that. Quite often, the people who are going to those parties are, are being starstruck by other people at those parties. Sure. Um, but for me, I mean, some of the, the, the lovelier moments were, were doing the sort of football tournaments. I can remember um, uh, playing, well, uh, hanging out with Peter Beardsley, which for me was far more exciting than meeting anybody from, I'm not going to be mean, but, in, you know, again, sure. insert band sure. name. Okay. I've learned not to be mean. It's taken 49 years. <laughs> because, you know, cruel humour is, is easy, but it's it's a low blow, isn't it? So I'd like to apologise to everybody I've ever met. Let's go back to the, the, the valleys, Martin. Yeah. A favourite song from an artist from your home county. Now, I wasn't sure whether this was a misprint. No. Or, or whether it was meant to be county or country. But county. fortunately, uh, uh, I grew up in Glamorgan. South Glamorgan, to be specific. And um, Shirley Bassey is a, a Cardiff girl, so that counts. Shirley Bassey was actually... Now my On my mum's side of the family, where um, there's a history of teaching. My mum was a primary school teacher. Um, my grandma, who's long dead now, um, was a primary school teacher in Tiger Bay. Well, actually, I think it was technically Cardiff Bay. <laughs> and, of course, people, people at home listening going... We don't know where that is. It doesn't really matter to us. But if there is somebody listening in Cardiff, they will understand that there is a distinction between Cardiff Bay and Tiger Bay. Um, for the rest of you, go make a cup of tea. Um, so my mum, my mum taught uh, at a school in Cardiff, uh, Cardiff Bay. Um, it was a very 
poor, rough community at that time. It's been gentrified now, like a lot of places. But um, uh, Cardiff was uh, probably along with London and Liverpool, because it's a, a port, was one of um, Britain's first uh, sort of really multiracial cities, big Caribbean um, population down there, best rice and peas in the UK, by the way. Um, and, you know, my, my mum, my grandma rather taught in a class of where there'd be 30 kids and 20 different nationalities and was fiercely anti-racist um, because of that, which is sort of very, I mean, she was born in 1898, my grandma, you know, so for somebody of that era um, to be, you know, actively anti-racist, I always thought was quite interesting. You know, she'd do the smarty lesson on me when I was six. You know, it was, it was hugely important for her that I, she drummed in, she drummed a sort of, sort of non-party political, but a, a definite sort of anti-discrimination um, message into me as a, as a very, very young grandson. Um, That's wonderful. Shirley Bassey was the tea girl at my, the school my grandma taught at. Right. Um, and apparently my, my, grandma, my grandma had sort of kept, not kept in touch, but kept an eye on her career. So was, was, was very fond of Shirley Bassey. Um, as a person, I think, as much as anything else. Um, and so, but the reason I chose Diamonds Are Forever, one, Shirley Bassey's, her ability to, I think one... <laughs> What people need to remember is before the 60s, songwriting and being an artist were, were separate things and never the twain did meet. It was only really the Beatles that started writing their own songs. Mm -hmm. And so singers had to be, as they have been for the, um, historically, interpreters of other people's work. And I think she's one of the greatest interpreters. Her, um, her phrasing is incredible. I love the fact that she's held on to her Cardiff accent. You know, diamonds are forever. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I hear home when I hear her sing. And that song especially, I, I use it sometimes um, as a brilliant example of some songs should be like onions in the fact that you... you this is a terrible metaphor, but go with me. That They slowly reveal themselves. You have to peel back layer after layer and diamonds are forever is a, a brilliantly written song in the sense that it um it reveals its true meaning very um very slowly and very beautifully and very gracefully um and it's a wonderful recording her 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 voice is incredible and her timing especially her 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 timing and her emphasis and her just her control of her voice is phenomenal but it yes it it makes me feel sexy and very few things make me feel sexy. Have you heard her perform um, Light My Fire? Yes. That's sexy. I'm glad there's nobody in the room. But it's, getting, <laughs> it's getting very hot in here, as Nelly once sang. Was it Nelly? It was yeah. Nelly. Uh, but thankfully, we're not, we're not undressing. Martin. Well, maybe not, thankfully. Who knows? No. <laughs> No one know. needs to see this no, top no, come no, off mine. Yeah, we're in a we're in a room with with <laughs> glass doors. Uh, who, who knows who could walk past? Um, you are you are very attractive. <laughs> Thank you very much, mine. Well, he's a very nice man, listener. He's, he's very handsome. He's he's got the look of a slightly sort of nautical theme going on today. Yeah, it's, this um, sailor chic is happening yes, today. Yes, it is. It's it's like <laughs> third hand yacht chic is what I'd call it. Oh, I'm dining out on that look tonight. 
final track, Martin, mm-hmm. a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Okay, well, this, I mean, this is a fairly well-known artist, um, but who I think was more popular about 15 years ago than she is now. Um, and I think I'm guilty of, of this particular musical sin as much as anybody else in the fact that a new artist comes along you maybe buy their first record you fall in love with it and the first uh, maybe the first album that you buy that you're not as keen on normally means you don't buy any more of their records and so with this with Regina Spector um, when Soviet Kitsch came out and I think that was the, the, the time where her popularity really really grew um, I think the f- I can't remember what the follow-up album b- was, but it was a, the one with radio as mm-hmm. a single on it. And I didn't really like it. I thought she'd had all her, um, the sort of vitalness of what she did sort of ironed out. And so I'd, I'd lost touch with what Regina Spector was doing. And, and one of the, the I've, I've got three children, my, my middle child, who's 19 now, her, we were talking, I was meeting her, boyfriend for the first time which is a very awkward situation mm-hmm. for everybody involved and we'd gone out for a cup of tea and uh, we were talking about music and I, f- for whatever reason Regina Spector came up and, and he said that her most recent album um, was was wonderful and was a real sort of return to form the sort of Soviet kitsch form and so I um, went home and listened to it, and this song, um, I mean, there's, it's a beautiful record as a whole, but this, this is a bit of a masterpiece. And it's called? The Trapper and the Furrier. So all of these songs will be on a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast, so everybody can go and listen and indulge in... Uh... I mean, listen to all of them, but listen, I, I, to be honest, if you are going to do that, listen to this one first. Because I don't want anybody not to hear this, and I, 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 it's really important that I think it's really important to realise that artists can still make incredible records, even though they're on album six or whatever it might be, and that it, it's not always the first couple of albums that are the best, or, or that people can have dips in form but return. And she's definitely returned. It's a, the album is stunning, and again, it's a, a, a goosebumpy. Um, record that that should be listened to in a dark room, lying naked on a bed with with a a fan on. That would actually no. Don't should you? I'm considering whether to put a fan on or not. This is really unimportant to the story. <laughs> but yes, but yes, lie, lie in a darkened room, close your eyes, and let it let it wash over you. Wear underwear. <laughs> <laughs> don't shit yourself. You know, general life advice. I what? talked a lot about poop today, haven't I? That's all right. One last show, then. Yes. And yep. when is it? Uh, June, I don't know. June. You ain't got to hype it, have you? Sold out. Well, it did. It did, which I was very surprised about. Um, Come on. Why was no, you I surprised? Was, I was. I mean, because you don't know. I haven't played a show for five, six years. You you know, when you're racked with self-doubt like I am, it's... I, I was thinking it's going to sell three, four hundred tickets, and I was going to really have to work very hard to sell them. Um, the promoters were convinced it would do well, and I, I've, I'm a terrible judge of such things, so I was happy to um, pass on the responsibility of that decision to them. Uh, yeah, but well, you know, four hours was 
I couldn't believe it. I was felt very liked. And also, my audience is, is probably about 20% fatter, so it's going to feel very full. When I saw you play um, the Esplanade in, uh, in Southend yeah. in the mid-90s, um, I probably would have been a few stone yeah. later. <laughs> I mean, you know, 2,000 two fat 40-year-olds in, <laughs> in the Shepherds, but it's going to be bulging at the seams. And I'm sorry if you're one of those people, but you know I'm telling the truth. Oh, amazing. Martin, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. This was uh, so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it. Did I manage to keep a lid on the, the fanboy in? I think I did. I think I did. Um, as I'm sure you've noticed, um, Martin's smashing, isn't he? Uh, it was a, yeah, a real lovely opportunity to get to spend an hour with someone who's... Um, creative output has, has has had an effect on on me and uh and yeah i'll stop talking now because i'm just going to keep going on about how kind he was um yeah okay so i'll be back next week with another episode in the meantime if you like me chatting to uh musicians please go and have a look in the back catalogue because you can catch me chatting to all manner of uh, of musicians recent weeks i've had um, Jake Schillingford, uh, 808 State, Adamski, Mark Morris, um, blimey, the, the list is endless. Go and have a little look about in the back catalogue. Um, please, if you're listening on iTunes, give us a, a review and a rating because that, that all helps. Um, if you want even more content, then I also have a weekly uh, show that I put on Patreon so you can go over there and, and I play music and, and chat and sometimes have guests. So please go and enjoy that. Um, other than that, I'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening, and thank you once more to Martin. See you next time. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, Scan the little code and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It may stew with him.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.